What does glitter have to do with mitochondria? Today's guest, Paulo Oliveira, might just have the answer for you. And it probably has something to do with science communication and science outreach. In this episode of Papa PhD, I'm bringing you a great conversation where we covered Paulo's journey into academia, as well as his take on what a 21st century researcher should be and on what skills should be part of their arsenal in the current job market. I think that's a critical thing. We're just not crazy people with lots of hair. But uh, yeah, we have to, we have to, people have to see us as someone who's here to help them, uh, not in the near future, but maybe in 10 years or 15 years, at least in, in our research field. We may be uh, creating a, a drug of tomorrow or, uh, or proving that a certain lifestyle is actually very good for people to get healthy. For example, playing football, except, except for your knees, uh, from my own experience. But um, we are here to help the society. I think we should all of us be here to help each other. That's... Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know that I've prepared for you a resource sheet to help you take a snapshot of your current situation and start defining your profile for the job market in your areas of interest. You can download it by visiting papaphd.com and following the instructions in the website footer. So today we're talking with Paulo Oliveira. Paulo is currently principal investigator at the Center for Neuroscience and Cell Biology, University of Coimbra, and an invited assistant professor at the same university. He is also the president of the European Society for Clinical Investigation, the co-founder of the startup Mitotag. He has a passion for mitochondrial biology in the context of aging and lifestyle diseases, and for science outreach. Part of his doctoral and postdoctoral training was done at the University of Minnesota, Duluth, USA, where he mixed mitochondrial research, playing soccer for a team called Port City, and shoveling snow in the winter. <laughs> I know this reality really well here in Montreal. Uh, his two daughters are great gymnasts, a trait that certainly they did not get from they, their father. Maybe uh, it's a mitochondrial uh, genes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Paulo. I'm super happy to have you here. We crossed paths in Coimbra last December in uh, in a meeting for uh, for doctoral students uh, around careers uh, after the PhD. So so uh, I was super happy to meet you there, and I'm really really glad to have you on the microphone today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the very kind invitation. Uh, so, Paulo, just reading your bio, I I already have like questions that I'd like to ask you, but uh, the first question uh, for the audience out there uh, would simply be for you to talk a little bit about yourself, uh, what your path, what your journey has been, uh, how you got into science, and uh, what road brought you from uh, you know those first days uh, being curious about uh, biology and, and, and similar things. Uh, up to today, uh, doing doing uh, mitochondrial science and uh, science outreach. 
Well, uh, I, I, I guess the show is about five hours, so I will start now. Uh, I have a funny story. So it goes back from uh, to actually my high school days. Initially, I was thinking to going to physical engineering because I thought I would work on something related with astronomy, astrobiology, something related with space. And then, and this is a story that my wife knows, so it's not, not, not a secret. There was a girl in my class that I was really enjoying. And she told me I want to go into a health-related field. And then I, th I thought twice instead of, okay, forget the space. Now suddenly I like things related with health sciences. So I, 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 I decided to choose and to go into my biology uh, kind of career in high school, or kind of course in high school. And just apprenticeship. In the meantime, that same girl left that school, so my 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 plan went down to down the drain. But anyway, then when it was time to to choose the, the course I wanted in college, my first option was actually um, chemical engineering, uh, which is kind of strange. But uh, that was my first choice. Then the day before, I had actually just to fill, fill in the papers in my. In the old times, I did it by paper and not online, some centuries ago. Um, I was looking at the different courses at the University of Coimbra, and I thought that biochemistry actually looked fancy. Uh, because it, it mixed chemistry with, uh, with bio, biology. It's like, wow, this looks like fancy. It looks nice to impress people. So I changed, and then I entered biochemistry. So during four years, four or five years, because I had a one year of scientific training, I, I took a degree in biochemistry. I got a 16 out of 20, which, by the way, was exactly the same mark. I entered college, so I didn't improve my average. Um, and then it was because I got a 16 out of 20. Uh, at that time, there was no this three plus two years as a master student. I didn't actually I got a master degree, so I applied directly to a PhD degree. And uh, about in the third year, I don't know why, I have no reason why, I really decided that I enjoyed learning more about mitochondria, so our cell powerhouses. And I thought that was really cool, the idea that we had an organelle that had an independent genome uh, that could do so many things, including generating energy for us, uh, among many other functions. But this was not a topic that was actually explored very well in my, our biology classes, or my camps, or several, whatever. We got like one or two classes, and mostly were about uh, all the different pathways, chemical pathways that occur in mitochondria. Uh, so that was not really integrated into the function of the organelle, or that would work in the cell. So I wanted to, to know more. So I approached this, this professor uh, called Antoni Moreno. And Antoni Moreno was, was, I still consider him one of the best teachers I've ever had. And he was working with mitochondria. He was doing some toxicological studies on mitochondria, pesticides, how pesticides were toxic for mitochondria, which is okay in the context of human, human disease, human toxicology. And then uh, he accepted me for a PhD. I got a fellowship from the Portuguese Foundation for Science and Technology. And during four years, I would have this funding so I could do mitochondrial studies. And then I did, I did something different. I did a project that involved the, the effects of a, of a cardioprotective drug that was used in clinic called Carvedilol. Uh, 
because it was known that cardiolol does protect you know, the, the cardiac cells from different types of, of aggressions. It's a beta blocker, so it's an anti-hypertensive. It lowers blood pressure. Uh, so I studied the mechanism by which that happens, uh, studying interaction with mitochondria. So most of my PhD was then investigating how, the, how this drug was very cardioprotective because it targeted mitochondria. Uh, so in my, so we went for three years, so I, I was not basically uh, doing this, um, got, got a couple of papers. Then on my third year, in the third year, there was someone else that actually also changed my life. So there's always this number of people which I think made my life uh, into a different road. And I think it's something, it's a good lesson so that we can have, we have to look back and decide which people actually change our lives. So we got, I got this Antonio Moreno, and then this Kendall Wallace. He is a professor at the University of Minnesota. And Ken Wallace came to Coimbra to give a, a seminar, give a talk. And he was, I was showing my data, and he said, I have a very good proposition for you. You, you come to Minnesota, you come to my lab, and you use carvedilol to try to inhibit or to avoid the toxicity of an anti-cancer anti-cancer agent that's used nowadays worldwide, but whose uh, caveat is actually a dose-dependent cardiotoxicity. So this agent, called, people that are treated with this agent called doxorubicin, suffer from acute toxicity and a long-term toxicity as well. And there was some, some preliminary work with Cardilol, made by a colleague of mine, actually, that showed some protective effects. And Ken Wallace wanted me to go to Minnesota and do a, a, a much more a deeper study uh, with that same molecule. Um, and then I accepted. And then in, more, in my fourth year, I went to Minnesota. I, was, I, was, I spent three months there. It's not a long time, but it was enough to change my life. You want to explain why? <laughs> Um, in the meantime, my mother died, which was interesting that she died right when I was outside the country, which she was actually good because I did not see her suffering the last days. Uh, and actually, this is a parenthesis. I always say that some things that occur in life are a, a, a resonance of the universe. So the universe kind of resonates, meaning that there was this strange coincidence. So she died in the week where I didn't have any experimental work planned. It was a single week. At the three months where I didn't have a single experiment to be there. Okay, and she died on a Sunday, which allowed me to come to Portugal to the funeral, get back on Wednesday, get back there and finish the work. I just, uh, yeah, that's, that was an interesting coincidence. But anyway, so I finished that work. Um, it got, we got a very nice publication. And then Ken Wallace told me that it could be good if I could return there for a postdoc. So I finished my PhD in three years instead of four, because I had already publication for that. I got a, I got a, a postdoc fellowship from, again, the Foundation for Science and Technology. And then I started going back to the US to, to the same lab six months per year during the next years. Um, and I did that uh, in the company of initially my girlfriend at the time, who was also a researcher, uh, and then later my wife. So she was my wife later on, and we. We went along, then my daughter was born here in Portugal, she also went with us. So from 2003, where I started my postdoc, to 2011, apart from one year, every single year, we used to go six months there and six months here. So I kind of did 
um, I had uh, two different realities. So I used to actually to bring some of my students when I started getting an independent group. Some of my students used to go there, do some work there. So I, I worked with Ken Wallace. I worked with other uh, other um, faculty there. John Holy, for example, is another guy that actually was very important for me. So I had a, a double life on both places. Um, and those three months in Minnesota were very important for me. First of all, because I learned many different things that normally I wouldn't learn here in Portugal. I also learned how to interact with people from different cultures because uh, Minnesota is an interesting place because we have people from all over the world, um, except from Portugal. I didn't see a lot of people from Portugal, at least where I was in Duluth, uh, except myself. So I had to see myself in the mirror every day. Um, but it was very nice so that we could, uh, we could learn new things, we could interact with people. Uh, we got a social life that was good to accompany my, our research studies. And in the meantime, I was also applying to projects in Portugal, getting projects, building my lab. And in 2011, uh, I decided, even with my wife, that it was no longer uh, very positive to go back and forth. So the, your whole family was always going there six months? Yes, always. So it's always. a lot of logistics uh, and, and... Yeah, yeah. My, my, my wife was, uh, was doing it. So when I was a postdoc, she was a PhD student, and she finished her, her, her PhD. Also started a postdoc there. Uh, my daughter was one year and a half and she went there for the first time. She learned to speak English first, then Portuguese. So she actually, yeah, she was speaking English fluently, much better than I do. Um, and then in, in like eight years ago, we thought that no, no longer, I had actually better conditions here in my lab than I had there. And of course, like I said, going back and forth with lots of suitcases and it's, it was kind of a thing. So I stayed here. I was hired actually in 2006 uh, as an assistant researcher at the Center for Neuroscience and Cell Biology, uh, which was actually Wood. So I have a, a position. I got a permanent position five years later on. I got promoted in 2012, I think, to principal investigator. And then my, my lab simply started growing, growing in size, also moved from place to place. I started in a very old building from the 17th century. Uh, the, the, it's called in, in Portuguese the College of Jesus because the, 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 the Jesuits were actually uh, working there. And I moved to the old medical school at the University of Coimbra, in the old campus. Um, in 2013, we actually moved, my lab moved to a, a biotechnology campus outside Coimbra. It's called BioCan Park, where we have amazing conditions to work. We have a very good ecosystem because we have different companies close by. So it's a biotechnology park. Our building belongs to the University of Coimbra, to the CNC, and we interact with companies. And this is another turning point in my life because, because not only the research I was doing, but this close contact with companies led me to do another thing, which is starting my own company. Okay, okay, okay. So you're, you're kind of in a technological park, but you're, you're in a university lab and university department with your students but Correct. close to these these companies, startups, that's super cool. I just wanted to to tell a note for the listeners uh, out there. If if you ever go to Portugal, the University of Coimbra is one of the oldest in Europe. Second, and uh, you know some of the the architecture is is uh, particularly beautiful, like the library. And uh, so if if you ever go to Portugal, do go to Coimbra. And uh, in terms of uh, university feeling, of campus feeling, it's very special. Uh, and it must have been uh, quite an experience working and having a lab in a, in such an old, uh, yeah. such a historical building. 
Yeah, once when, and let me also open the parenthesis. I think it's very nice for the for the for the researchers that are probably listening. Some of the some of the places people can visit the University of Coimbra are are now museums, but used to be places where people used to, to learn. So the old chemistry lab, uh, the old physics now is physics museum used to be a place where students would learn physics. Uh, the the natural the natural history cabinets, for example, where. Uh, Vandelli in the I think 18th century created a, a very nice collection, and I always when I now I work like I said in a brand new park, uh, close collaboration with companies, with uh, innovation, and this is very special for for us. Um, but one wonders how think or science was some centuries ago mm-hmm. when we didn't have the pressure of deadlines, of filling Excel spreadsheets, <laughs> of making uh, outputs. Uh, publishing papers because we have to publish papers or else we will be kicked out or perish yeah <laughs> so what to, exactly so what i do so when i go to people for meetings because the cnc the headquarters are in the old campus when I, when I take some time and of course i don't buy anything because i'm faculty i always go to those museums and i lose my time there just roaming across rooms and thinking when science was really just science when people had time to think about science and not pressured by other diversions and bureaucracy. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, and it's true that it, it makes you travel. Just v- being in those places makes you kind of travel in time. Um, I anyway, it's a bit off to- off topic, but I I was uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Lisbon, and they also have the 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 science museum. And again, I actually had organic chemistry classes in a very very old uh, uh, like tile-laden laboratory that they, they're not made like that anymore. Super exactly. tall ceilings, uh, something, it's a bit, makes you think it's a bit Harry Potter-like in a way. <laughs> but it, it does uh, make you travel to a time where things went slower and and um, and the reality of being a researcher was quite, quite different. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I always, because during my initial years of my PhD, for example, I use a, a device called a, a Spectromic 20. Mm-hmm. And it was to, to my surprise when I went to the science museum that I saw a similar device or the same, I don't know, because they may have obtained it from the place where I was used to work mm-hmm. in the museum. Okay. So I'm that old. <laughs> but anyways, so we moved to this this campus, beautiful lab, all the, all the conditions, very new equipment. I was given some new equipment that uh, we used to, to work with mitochondrial uh, function to measure respiration. So we started a company called Mitotech. Uh, so uh, some of the, the research we've done, done in, the, in my group is actually passed to the company. We have to submit two patents, um, which now we are entering the different national phases. And then, the, 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 because the patents belong to the University of the CNC and University of Porto, because it's a joint venture, then both license to our company. So now we are in the final stages of getting investment. Uh, we got some um, some competitive projects. We got about eight hundred thousand euros in projects for the company. And if things go well, we'll be able to start. Uh, the company has been alive for the last two years, but we've been doing kind of taking care of the patents and so on. But now with this money, we hope we're going to do the whatever it takes to put it uh, a product in the market. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting to me is that so you know you had all these academic path uh, you now have your lab you're you're well established you have your students and you were able because kind of a logistic thing of being in this park to kind of dip your toes in the business startup space 
which is very cool. But before maybe going into into some questions about that, can you tell us a little bit more about what MitoTag is? Uh, you know what you guys are doing, how how you're you know you're bringing mitochondria into this business-like uh, space. Well, I, I have a bias, number one, and I have to say this because I work with mitochondria. Mitochondria are my, like I said, my scientific passion. Um, I think every single disease has a mitochondrial component. Mitochondrial, in this case, a mitochondrial dysfunction component, either in the origin. Yes, there are a lot of mitochondrial diseases which are fatal because uh, the cells do not, uh, do not produce energy that's enough for them to, to live or in the propagation of the disease. So this said, one of the things that characterize many pathologies, human or animal pathologies, is an increased oxidative stress. So for those readers that are not familiar with this, is that if you cut an apple and left it exposed to the air, it turns brown. It oxidizes. That's and this, ox this oxidation is because of molecular oxygen that we have in the air. And the same happens to our bodies. So we slowly age because, among other, other factors, our cells do get oxidized. And mitochondria are a particular example because our cell respiration, so our, the oxygen that we breathe, is actually converted to water in our cells inside mitochondria. But not only water that's produced, but there's something else that's produced called oxygen-free free radicals which are toxic derivatives. And those toxic derivatives, if they are, and they are high enough, they can start destroying mitochondria. And if the cell loses their mitochondria, they, they die because they don't generate energy or other functions. And people may ask, okay, we can go to the, to over the counter and buy some supplements to have antioxidants, something that we hear on TV every or single day. Drink green tea or... <laughs> For example, many, the problem is that many of those, there are two types of antioxidants, so, I mean, there are lots of types, but gen, in, in generic terms, there are those that you get from the diet, which are, some of them are very effective because we are, we've been adapted to them for, the, for millions of years or thousands of years, and are the ones that you take uh, over the counter from a supplement. And those are the ones that don't work or rarely work, rarely work because first of all, they are excreted in urine very fast or they don't, one of the problems they have is that if you take a lot of antioxidants just because you want to be young forever and live until you are 300 years old, what you are doing is that you are disturbing what we call the normal redox balance in cells because you are, you are killing these oxygen-free radicals even in places where they should be there. Because you can get more infections, for example, and you can disturb the, the DNA, your, how your DNA works. Okay. And it's a problem. So there's a the, this redox balance you're talking about. It's a reduction oxidation. It's a balance of oxidative uh, molecules. Oxidative molecules and antioxidants that we have and in our cells. And antioxidants. So you, you have to have a balance. Okay. In some diseases, what happens is you, you don't have a balance because you have more oxidants than antioxidants. But even if you supplement, you're never going to get a, a level high enough to actually counteract that. And if you do more harm than good. If there's a clinical study that if you take antioxidants uh, from an uh, age like 20 or 30 years old, you actually increase the risk of suffering from different diseases. So, um, so I started working with this, with this colleague at the University of Porto, her name is Fernanda Borges. And Fernanda, she works in chemical synthesis, so she, she synthesizes uh, many novel molecules for drug development. And she had the idea of modifying polyphenols, which are molecules that exist in our diet, which are antioxidants. Some of them are not very stable. 
some of them go quickly in our urine, which is a, which, which is bad. But so she perfected a, a, a method to bind to those polyphenols a tail that will be attracted to mitochondria in cells. So they kind of put a zip code in polyphenols and to tell them now you need to go to mitochondria. And it's a more, much more stable mitochondria, much more stable molecule. Uh, we have different molecules, much more stable, more effective. So this, this was the idea. And now comes the decision point. We got some very nice results and what to do next. So this is a common lesson for all the entrepreneurs out there. You have a technology, you have a product, you have something, you have two ways of doing this, or you publish your data, and then you can risk the options of getting a patent in some countries, for example, or you create a company around that. So we, we create what we initially called mitodiets. So mitodiets was supposed to explore the commercial use of those novel mitochondria-directed antioxidants um, for many, many types of diseases, uh, from Alzheimer to Parkinson to ALS to non-alcoholic liver disease to cardiovascular diseases, because we have some data in almost every single, single thing. Uh, and then we, we joined two other guys, because we are researchers, we don't know anything about business things. So we got two, two very interesting guys, that actually uh, we know, I, I'm, I've known for many years, they are also also from biochemistry. One was from IEN College, the other one was one, uh, one of the guys, his name is uh, Antonio. He, was, he, he went up to being commercial director of a company in, in Portugal. And the other guy uh, actually went to a different path. So he became a music producer. He has a music studio in Coimbra. Uh, he had also a couple of experience in many, many different things in, in uh, multimedia and everything with, with sound and marketing. So we took them both in, one more for the business angle, the other one more for the communication. And uh, So the four of us, like I said, we created MitoDiets. We start off with investors, but investment in Portugal is tough because they don't want to invest in human human uh, applications because they don't see the money like in two or three years it's like 10 years so we were advised to change this to another thing that would give us money uh, in the first years but that which could be used to bootstrap future applications in human health okay and besides one of the one of the one of the potential uh, investors said hey by the way you have to change your name because mitodiets sounds like supplements mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you, you don't want to go into that of course if if there's an investor that says okay you get, you get your 10 million euros let's go into supplements we go to supplements <laughs> but anyway uh, we changed name to mitotag tag from tagging um and we change how we, we did a, a pivot so we change mostly towards a cosmetic application right to avoid skin aging uh, we have very interesting uh, in vitro data, and we are going to start some human, human trials as well. Uh, and also to animal health, for example, giving this as a supplement to senior pets. Senior pets, because uh, surprisingly, people spend a ton of money in pets uh, worldwide. It's uh, the amount of money is huge among us. Uh, so now, Mitotag, basically, Mitotag. Our aim is to validate mitochondria-directed antioxidants that are based in polyphenols that have applications in human health and animal health. Um, like I said, 
cosmetics is not exactly human health, but is a way of approaching, uh, approaching the market right away. Uh, so for those last years, we've been, we've been talking with, uh, with investors, we've uh, uh, been doing some exploration programs uh, in Portugal, we've been gaining some momentum, gaining more evidence. So now we are negotiating an investment deal. Um, so this is our okay. microtech. Super, going. super interesting. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's funny because you seldom hear anything about mitochondria in, in I don't know, in the, the media. Uh, you, you're going to hear about other diseases, and now viruses and uh, and things like that. Mitochondria are a bit ignored. <laughs> like, uh, the, yeah, the, yeah, but uh, but uh, but each time when I when I start work, so like I said, I started working in mitochondria in 1997. So it's been a while. And... Uh, for the next year, there was a, a very well-known professor that told me, you have to start, uh, you have to move to another field. You have to go to neurosciences. You have to go and study Parkinson, Alzheimer's. Just forget mitochondria. Uh, because everything you need to know about mitochondria, you know that already. We know that. There's nothing else to know about mitochondria. And then I told him, well, by the way, mitochondrial alterations are also involved in Parkinson and Alzheimer's. That's number one. And second, I think there's a lot to be known. And the future... Uh, show that I was correct. If you go to PubMed, which for those who don't know is a database of all scientific publications, in the last 10, 15 years, the number of publications on mitochondria has been increasing a lot. The exponential increase in mitochondrial publications. So this, this shows that I was, I was right. Your hunch was good. Uh, it was right, yeah. I was, I was. <laughs> now there are many things from, uh, from uh, for example, the role of mitochondria in inflammation, how mitochondrial transfer can help curing some of diseases. So you can, there's a, there's a group in the States that can that inject mitochondria isolated from muscle of a patient to the cardiac muscle in the context of cardiovascular diseases. And mitochondria are simply, they go to the heart and they help curing the heart, if you will. Um, for those that don't know, the original mitochondria is, a, is a probably a bacterial origin. So 1.5 billion years ago, what we know now as mitochondria were actually bacteria that were free-floating and they were engulfed by a larger cell. So this is why our mitochondria can, in some cases, release stuff when we are sick that causes inflammation, including their own DNA. So uh, there's many, many things involving mitochondria in many, many diseases is, is now known. And the, the, the in mitochondrial medicine, which is something also my group is working, uh, is, is you see each time more uh, interventions that are aimed to improve mitochondrial function in the context of different diseases. Super interesting, and uh, and well, this, that's the, the the lesson is don't ignore don't ignore the the small things or don't don't brush away things that historically it is thought that we know everything about this or that. Exactly. Super, super interesting, uh, and uh, I, I, I wish you uh, that that uh, all this this investment part is going to be uh, fruitful for you, and that the applications are gonna are gonna be more and more. Now I have a bunch of questions because we we started at high school. We're now at you know being a PI and developing a, a, a business aspect to your science. But uh, one thing that I mentioned uh, in your intro uh, has to do with outreach, with science outreach. 
it's something that that uh, interests me uh, a lot and that I think is more and more important nowadays from different reasons all the fake news out there be they medical uh, or scientific that that you that come in the media and get you know get uh, a lot of exposure I'd like to, to hear a little bit and to share with the audience with all the things you already do how you're able to include an, an outreach aspect to your your activities what type of outreach you do and how important also you think it is for scientists today to give some time to to outreach well we just added five more hours to the show so <laughs> um, we do and say we uh, myself and my group uh, we actually do a lot of outreach we are probably one of the groups at the cnc that participates the most in outreach initiatives either organized through the CNC communication office, which is very, very, very active, uh, probably one of the best in the country, uh, if not the best, uh, but also outside the scope of the uh, CNC communication office. I think it's, it has, it's mandatory for us as researchers to communicate what we do. And communicate in terms of science is not publishing science or nature papers. It's to go to the population and say, hey, this is what we do. You're using some of your money, some of your taxes, to do science that eventually can improve your life, either in biology, engineering, history, whatever field you are doing, you need money to do it, and at the end it will have a name for something. So we have to show, you know, in, our, in biology, it's where we work, we have to show that the taxpayer's money is being used for something that will improve their lives. So we... Uh, we CNC as a whole, but in our particular case in my group, we do many uh, outreach, outreach initiatives. Of course, the one that everybody participates in is European Researchers Night once a year. So that's kind of, everybody does that. And, and some people do that once a year and, and they say that we do outreach, which is just one time a year. It's done all over Europe uh, at the end of September. It's a one, it's a one shot thing. It's a one shot, yeah. So some, some people may do that and say, okay, we do outreach. It's not, it's nothing. So we, we give courses to high school uh, students and teachers. There is a, there is a small institution in a, in a small, small town, actually, uh, close to Hattingir called Mama Rosa. It has an institute uh, that provides education to high school students and professors. So we, every year, twice or three times a year, we go there, I go there. So I give courses on mitochondrial biology in the context of different diseases, they are always, there's, there are actually people there that every single year they go to the same course, which is interesting. Uh, we go to high schools, to, um, schools for initiatives to give talks, to make hands-on approaches. Um, we also go to even the younger people. So I can tell you one thing that we did was very nice. In five weeks, we went to a primary school. So uh, classes from first year to fourth year. So each class, each group had a four-year, four-hour class in one afternoon from one to five. So we did. We showed them what, uh, what cells look like on the microscope. They were drawing cells. I was telling them, we before we started, we asked them what what do you know about cells. Of course, kids, most of them, they have no idea what cells were, except my daughter. Mm -hmm. She was in that school. Yeah. Of she knew what cells <laughs> were in mitochondria, but that's an exception. Um, and then after that, they knew exactly what the cell was. They could draw a cell. It was very nice. So we did that for the four years. Um, we go to, 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 uh, to assisted care homes for older people. Uh, we did also outreach with them about non-alcoholic fatal liver disease. Um, 
We also participated uh, uh, again with the, C with the CNC Science Communication Office um, into producing comics, uh, comics related to different diseases. For example, I, there is a comic uh, that I um, I was I am one of three authors on mitochondria. It's, a, it's available. It's part of it's a book chapter of a book uh, published by a, a certain publisher. I cannot say the name, but it's not correct. Uh, and we also have the, the Portuguese version that we are now trying to see if we can circulate in Portugal. So it's about 40 pages, very nice comic on mitochondria. Uh, we also have, uh, uh, there are many at the CNC for the, about sleep, about uh, many types of several diseases, about physical activity. We, we participated through one of the European projects I'm coordinating, it's called Foie It's about non-alcoholic liver disease. And one important part there, which was very recognized by the uh, European uh, U Union and the, the officers there, that we had one of the best outreach sections ever to be evaluated. So we have a ton of, of outreach throughout the entire network in Europe. And one of them was to uh, perform uh, uh, outreach initiatives and games during the university games that were here in Coimbra, Portugal last year. And that those European university games brought to Coimbra about 5,000 athletes from all over Europe. So it's like a small Olympic Games for university students. So we did a lot of outreach. We made a comic about physical activity, mitochondria and health. So we gave to the athletes, we gave to non-athletes, we gave to, gave to judges. Uh, we made about 3,000 inquiries about what sport means for their, as a lifestyle to improve diseases. Um, so. Uh, and we, we actually are now preparing a, a manuscript to be published about that. We also bring high school students to our labs to spend one week working, um, uh, either in organized terms, either non-organized. Sometimes I have a couple that would like to come here. They, their parents have to sign something. It's, whatever happens, it's not our fault. So if we, if we try experimental uh, words on them, it's so, not our uh, fault. These are high school students. Okay, so a waiver yes, of yes. sorts, the depth. Uh, Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, I've, but I'm, I'm always joking, say, if they blow up the lab, <laughs> then it's their fault. Awesome. Uh, uh, so this is actually, we do, we do a lot. And uh, sometimes we do not have time to do more. Sometimes we get invited to do more things, but we don't simply don't have time because we have many things to do at the same time. Uh, especially myself, I do like, I think it's mandatory, and I do like talking about science with people. Uh, and I do learn a lot because it's not just teaching science, and I do learn a lot from people from other areas. Not only can give views that I would never think about and I can use in my own research, they also learn things from their own fields, uh, which it's important for me to know because I do like learning. That's something I, when, once yeah, I stop yeah. learning, that's science. <laughs> well, and for all of us, I guess, but but no, it's it's uh, it's quite amazing. It's a lot from what you're saying. It's a, it's a lot of work for sure. Uh, I'm curious to ask you some questions about how uh, you're able to to make all of that happen. We'll do that in the second part. Also, because uh, we're going to take a little break soon. Also, you know, looking back at the story you told, it's the, the old thing. When you look back, everything makes sense. But I'm sure that along the way, you had questions, you had uh, moments where you had big decisions to take. Uh, and we'll also maybe talk about that a little bit. Uh, in the second part to inspire and maybe give some uh, some uh, tips 
to the listeners out there who are in the process of transitioning, of thinking, do I stay in academia or not? Uh, and, uh, and of thinking, how can I do more as a, an academic, as a researcher? So we'll take a little break now and, uh, and we'll resume in a, in a couple of seconds. I'd really love you, the audience, to play an active role in the show. So if there's a theme you'd like to see covered on the show, or if there's a guest you'd like me to interview, head over to anchor.fm forward slash PhD and drop us a voice message to be featured on a future episode. On the Papa PhD website, you can also subscribe to our newsletter and get our resource sheet at the bottom of every page. And you can also leave us a written message in our contacts page. So welcome to part two of our, uh, of our interview with Paulo Oliveira. And uh, at the end of part one, we were just talking of all the, the science outreach projects and, uh, and events that uh, he takes part in and his lab uh, takes, takes part in. And one of the things that came to mind right away was this is a, this is a lot of this is a lot of stuff. Uh, and, you know, you do your research, you have mitotag that I'm sure takes time and takes you know part of your bandwidth and the question that i uh, have for you is um how do you make this fit into your your work you know the research the the startup part and also what ripples out from this into your lab to your students and the third aspect is what structures in the department in the cnc help you be able to be so active in the in the outreach uh, aspect okay so i'm starting i'm starting with the with the, with the last one uh, like i said uh, before we are lucky that at the cnc we are probably one of the most active uh, science communication offices in the country uh so they they actually uh, provide us with some ideas of, of initiatives that they create and they invite us to participate Uh, other times we come with ideas ourselves and contact them. For example, that event in the primary school was our idea. So we went to them, we went to the coordinator and she was extremely enthusiastic and gave us the means to do that, materials. Uh, she helped carrying stuff to the school. Um, so we have a very good relationship with the science communication office at the CNC. So they are always very supportive of things we want to do. Um, what they ask us is that we try to, to to consider uh, or to, to, to make a, a number of people that are in that, in that outreach initiative to make accounts, to try to measure the impact. You see, uh, or you make a query at the end, asking people, or it's a kind of a measure of how that outreach initiative had an impact afterwards, which, which I think is also, also important. But it's, it's, I think, like I said, I think we are, Uh, very lucky for all this, for all this, uh, all this support. It's very good that institutions have something like this, because um, because otherwise, if you are a researcher and then you someday say, uh, how, "How can I do outreach now?" If you don't have a science communication office like this, it's much more difficult. But but researchers have to think they can do this even if they if they don't have a structure. And the structure is if you have young kids, for example, in school. One thing you can propose is say, hey, I would like to go to school, to the class, and I'm going to, to do a, a demo of something. You can go to the internet, and even if you have something that changes the color when you add a sugar, for example, or something, for you it may be very basic and simple. It's not like a nature paper. But for the kids, it's like <gasps> Harry Potter stuff. <laughs> okay? So yeah, this, yeah. This, is, this is what we've been doing in our, with our two girls. 
it's exactly that. So we've been talking with professors, say we have we have a series of, of outreach things you can do here. They're always enthusiastic. We spend there one afternoon, two afternoons. We propose little things, even even just painting. Uh, we have we have something we have something that's we do that. We started doing that many years ago, and now it's like a, our greatest hit, which is called shiny mitochondria. So kids actually build mitochondria, the structure. So they put glitter. They have like this colorful foam. So they build mitochondria, and they take it home. And probably in our different outreach initiatives, we probably had more than 1,000 of those mitochondria being done by kids. Uh, so it's probably uh, Quimbra is full of <laughs> shiny mitochondria all over the place. And that was exactly that was exactly the the, the way we did it. So talking with with, uh, with professors, and if there was an open door, then we went back to science education office. Oh, by the way, they would like to us to do this for them. Can you help us? Can you get us the materials? And of course, if, they, if you don't have no, anyone to give you materials, come on, it's not very expensive to buy this type, type, type of things. And it's very important for the kids. And it's very important for the, also for the parents because the kids go home very enthusiastic because they saw science. And maybe those are the same parents that were flooded with fake stuff from fake science. And then they start thinking that there may be something else to learn, not just... Uh, go through what sometimes the, the board of media or social media says about scientific discoveries that many are fake or controversies or conspiration theories whatsoever um, so it's, it's so so that's that's uh, that's what we do and how do we integrate that um, uh, I, I'm like I said I have, I have a very group a very good research group of course they have a, a core that's been there all the years the rest is kind of a changing students and so on but every time uh, for example, I, I, give, I gave the example of the European Researchers' Night. Every time I ask for volunteers, I have a ton of volunteers. And so even people show up in my group that initially they didn't offer themselves as volunteers, but then they will show up there and they want to help. Um, so I've always, it's very, they, it's very nice because they, they, they know a lot about stuff we are teaching and they also like to interact with, with kids. Kids or even, even grown-ups, like I said, we also went to the to an assistant care living uh, home, so senior people doing s several games. Uh, we also have, there are several games that are, were created by the Science Communication Office that we often use in our own activities and vice versa. So sometimes uh, we can be called by the, by the coordinator of the communication office and say, hey, we are, we are going to a school, can we take your idea of the shiny mitochondria? So we'd like to do it there. And of course, they don't, know, they don't need to do that. They know that's, of course, they can do. But then they take the idea and they do things. Uh, so it, it's always a very good relation. But as I said, it's nice to have that in an institution. But if you want to do science outreach, if you know how to explain your things in simple words, uh, you should do it. First Question, is, is there kids training offered to the students on, uh, on science communication or science outreach, on simple, uh, simple writing, things like that? Yes, uh, the, CNC, the, the CNCS courses. So students can do that. Uh, I can tell you that besides the course offered by the CNC, the European Project I'm Coordinating has 12, um, has 12 uh, PhD students, actually 13, sorry, 13 PhD students, uh, and they also have a course on science outreach, as well as in innovation. So we try to teach them different things because you need to know more than just your field of research. Because if you know your field of research very well, 
But if you know other, also other soft skills, you will be more adapted to the market outside. So people have to think, especially young research, they have to think on an island, uh, two different islands. One uh, that has a, a certain type of animal that only eats one type of grass. And the other island has like three or four animals that eat different types of vegetables, grasses, whatever. Now, if the particular grass dies in the first island, there will be no survivors. But in the second island, at least some of the animals will survive. And this was this actually, it's a very good example that was told by a colleague and friend of mine who's a, as a bioinformatics person. And he, he always told this example um, in terms of machine learning and how systems evolve. And I think this is how we have to, to see our careers and all the things that we get uh, involved into. I mean, I'm in a certain age. It's, it's very difficult that I now will change from 100% to science outreach. I don't know. I never know. But if you are younger, you have many, many more paths in front of you. I think, I think one of the things that's failing uh, in most schools, universities, doctoral programs, is this teaching of diverse soft skills. And again, we are lucky because the CNC doctoral program, it's called BEV, uh, Biomedicine Experimental Biology doctoral program, also teaches a, a set of skills, of soft skills to students uh, in innovation, for example, grant writing, outreach, so many different um, soft skills that students when they finish their PhDs, they'll be much more ready to choose, they have more options to choose their, their career. And if they're not happy in one, they can try to aim for, for another yeah, one. Th that's amazing. And, you know, uh, you know, this could mean that someone out there listening could start the communication department in the university they're at if it doesn't exist and if that's their passion. Exactly. And exactly. Even, even though they're now doing research towards a PhD or in their postdoc, you know, it's it's super interesting and it's it's uh, inspiring. The thing that I that I uh, I kind of want to say now, well, th there's different things, but uh, you were mentioning before how you go to those old labs and you feel, oh my God, the life of the researcher has changed. And I think maybe, you know, you were kind of talking of the 20th century researcher, and now we're kind of alluding to something which would be the 21st century researcher. Because there's the, the social media are out there, people are now posting stuff on Twitter about the article that they just published, they, are, they have blogs, they have podcasts, and I think it's, it's really, really exciting to hear that universities uh, are are hearing this, are seeing this, and are now providing the students, and specifically the, the CNC, with these tools. And for me, it's it's a great, great thing to hear, and uh, it makes me really, really happy inside. <laughs> exactly. the, second, the second thing, which I find very cool, is I feel that the way things are organized, the, the, there's... Uh, so the center is kind of radiating, constantly radiating to the community that's kind of around you. And you're kind of putting a, a positive pressure of actual, you know, bona fide science towards the community, which is constantly bombarded with uh, maybe fake news, fake science. Exactly. From, from the outside, from the media. So kudos for that. It's, it's really, to me, again, this kind of makes my day to hear that something like this happens. And, and I'm sure that if it's happening there, it's, it's probably happening, you know, in, in different universities around the globe, and I, I surely yeah, hope so. hopefully. Awesome. Now, I, I really wanted to have this chat about outreach because I think it's really important. And, uh, and you know, people, uh, for people listening, if you want uh, a communication department to be created where you are, well, maybe 
start it you know be the one who starts it and then you, you never know what it's like a company it's like a company if you if you don't if you don't if you're doing research and if you think okay i'm not seeing myself doing this for the next 30 years but what i'm going to do you start something you think about what the society needs what people need what the institution needs and you can propose that um there are many there is of course this is startup boom all over the place But if you fail once, you try again. If you fail twice, you try again. Different things. You have to insist in doing, in doing this. And you look for people need to look also for advice. People that this did this before. And people should not, like I said, should not be afraid or ashamed of looking for advice. It's like us men don't want to take a look into a map. Now we have GPS. We don't uh-huh. know we have Google Maps. But in the old <laughs> times, uh, we never looked to a map. You know, we, 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 we didn't care if we were completely lost in the middle of the ocean, but we don't look at the map. That's our thing. People need to ask for advice to, to, to do that. And if there are people that did this road already, just ask. Yeah. And often people will, ha- will be glad to share some knowledge, some advice, and, uh, and, uh, and even some mentorship. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Paulo, uh, this, is, this is great. And... The, the next thing that I'd like to talk about, uh, and I, we're kind of going to slowly go back through your through your uh, the timeline. Um, so going back to Mitotag and, and your experience now in the more of a business type endeavor, and you were talking just before about how failure is part of the game and you shouldn't be paralyzed by the fear of failure. Yes. Uh, you didn't say it in these words, but it's it kind of how, how, how I interpreted it. And w- one of the things... And, and you, you're particular because you are in academia, you are developing research, and from that research is stemming something that is in the business uh, startup space. But um, some people out there may be thinking of completely going into business or going into industry. And I was having a conversation not so long ago with a, with a postdoc in a mentorship-related uh, meeting um, who was really stressed about okay it's kind of this should i stay or should i go you know like by by the <laughs> the clash and one thing he said was to the tune of if you dip your toes outside academia it's nearly impossible to come back and here you are in academia and swimming in something else at the same time and i'd like a little bit to talk about this uh, kind of preconceived idea that you become soiled by you know you impure if if you don't stay uh, in the in the straight and narrow and in, in this you know almost saintly uh, uh, monastery type life and um, again you're you're doing both you're finding a way to do both things but I wonder if you can share a little bit uh, about not being afraid of failure and not being af- afraid of trying things And about this phrase and this belief that if you, you know, if you try, if you dip your toes outside, then it's going to be hard to come back. Do you have anything you can share on that? Well, let me start with the, the, the fear of failing. Uh, you are absolutely correct. We live in a society where people think that failing uh, will mark you for life. And we are all to blame on that. And we also have to blame that on our education system that teaches kids that they should not fail. I remember when we were in the primary school doing that cell-based work, that when we got there, I asked the kids, and I'm talking about six-year-old kids, okay, the first, first thing you're going to do now is to draw a cell. And the kids, so we don't know what a cell is. That's, that's great. Just draw a cell. 
let them not know. That's okay. Just draw what you think a cell looks like. And some kids made whatever <laughs> weird things. Other kids could not draw anything, zero, because they were afraid of failing uh, what they were doing. And this, this was scary. They have, it's, it's the fear of failing. It's, it's, and you cannot be, you have to, sometimes, when you think too much about going to a certain path or another, you increase your odds of failing. You have to use your gut feeling, basically. And if you fail, you fail. You, you try again. And about this of getting out of academia and not returning, there are ways of doing that. So people, it's not my guess, but people can start a company, leave your place in the academia with a, without a salary. That's In Portugal, that's possible, for example. Do your own thing in, 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 the, in the industry or in your own company. And then if you want to get back and say, hey, I'm back again, please reset my salary. Some case that Take never kind happens. of a sabbatical? Exactly. For example, that's, 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 uh, that's a possibility. Um, the other way is to do what I'm doing. I'm still doing research. I have a contract with CNC. That's, uh, I fulfill all the objectives even more. And I kind of work for the company, uh, kind of doing things for the company at night <laughs> or weekends. Uh, but the thing is that most of the, of the work that supports the company business is done in my own lab because those are the know-how that we generate that's later used by the company. And the company itself is a, is a spin-off of the CNC. So the CNC and universities have to gain if researchers and faculty actually go back and forth because that's actually a way of bringing even funds to the universities where the, the intellectual property is generated. So your, your lab is the mitochondrium of your company and your company is the mitochondrium of the, of the, of the center of the university. It's, 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 quite, it's, kind, of, it's kind of that, yeah. So we, we, we generate, like I said, generate all the, the know-how that's, and, the, and, the, and the company is like a, a, using this know-how to make better, better products. And if, for example, if I'm, I'm going to give an example. People in the company, those two guys that are helping us, or they are co-founders of the company, they go to see a possible, a possible customer in the cosmetic industry. And a possible customer tells things that are important for product development in the, our research group. If we submit a grant to study something on a more fundamental research base, we can write that on, in terms of impact, this will impact the road to market because companies now want this product to be like this. So the, there's, a, there's always, people should not divide things, but there's always one thing that should be common to both. You have to be serious. You have to be, you cannot hide things. You cannot make up things just because you want to win in one or the other. And now imagine someone who's in their, you know, second year of, of postdoc after their, after their PhD, and they, they may have like family pressures to, to either not move country. And they start questioning, should I, because the dream is tenure, right? It's the dream. And a person who is at the beginning of, of this trek that may take two, three, four, five years before having a position that may lead to tenure. You know, many different things may impact their decisions and they may be, I'm thinking of this conversation I had and, and you know, quite stressed about what's the right thing to do. Uh, I've, I see colleagues going into industry, but I really, like my research is my baby. If I leave, I feel that then when I come back, I don't, ha I don't find my place anymore and, and that my research has gone to someone else. 
you know, given what you see around you, is there any word of advice uh, that, that you can share with someone in this particular situation of being really early in their career and, and having this questioning and these doubts? Well, for one thing, my best word of advice is that um, there's no easy answer. <laughs> Basically, because um, there are risks in everything. There are. I cannot, I'm not going to say that everything's going to be all right. It's not. There are risks. But uh, people have to, have to find a place where, are, where they are more motivated, where they find the perfect ecosystem for them to work, and where they find their motivation to, to thrive into something. And sometimes in academia, you cannot find that. And there's common, it's not in Portugal, it's worldwide. And if you're a postdoc, if you're in a research group, because of the structure of the group, it's difficult for a postdoc to grow and become independent. Because most PIs actually uh, tend to consider the, the, the research space as their own. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Okay, that's, that makes all sense. So it means that if you're a postdoc for three or four years, you're never going to get independence that will allow you to get a tenure track later on, for example. They say, okay, in all your papers, you're never the last author. You are sometimes first author, sometimes in the middle. So you don't didn't get a grant under your name. So it's difficult. So in finding a group that would allow you to grow, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Okay. Uh, but if, if you find a chance in academia, like here, it happened a lot. So like I said, we are in Biotechnology Park. We lost a lot of people that were for many years in academic groups that moved to companies in the park. And they are there. And I've seen also the opposite. Uh, people that got five, six years in, in some companies. And they say, okay, now it's time to get back to research. And they came back. If you are if you are very good and you have to be the same thing you have to be is very competitive that's rule number one if you are very good if you are competitive it doesn't matter where you are it doesn't matter you you have to uh, you, you you want to do your job a very a very good job you have to fulfill all your, all your objectives you are going to help the institution or the company and if you decide to go back to academia there may be a research group or an university that says, oh, by the way, you have experience in industry, you continue to have some, some research, and I'll, I'm, I'm going to get back to this, some research in the in late, latest years, we can take you back. And there's a way of doing this, for example, if you have to leave your research group, always keep uh, a toe in the research group, either by helping your former colleagues with publication, for example, or becoming yourself available to perform an experiment. You can ask the company, say, hey, by the way, I'd like to go just to do some very quickly thing. Or it's difficult, I know, in some cases. But if you keep always a small toe uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the research part, it's easier to get back. Even if you cut all your ties, if you are very good, if you are competitive, it's always, it's always possible to return years later on. But it's, But you have to you have to think that uh, you'll do that only if you really hate where you are. Okay, so there's not I don't think there's an easy you have you have to have your gut feeling going through this. It's not uh, life is not a straight line, and if you you cannot predict what's going to happen in 10 years, you cannot. The feeling never. I have is that people identify very strongly at at some stages, especially early stages with their current set of data with their current uh, research project it's they're very self-identified with that Correct. same thing yes. and what you're saying is that 
you can if you detach from that a little bit and and you look at your skill set and your brain and how how you're able to tackle things this is what counts in the end and this is what people will consider when rehiring you yeah exactly so that detachment with your current set of data that you have that's your baby maybe that can be helpful to take the decision to try something uh, to try something and not feeling that you're cutting ties completely exactly exactly and what counts what counts is not um, that you are working with mitochondria what counts is that you have the expertise to do high quality work wherever you are this is what companies want i can there's a, a very large company worldwide that the headquarters are actually in Coimbra, uh, or in Coimbra outskirts. It's their software company. Um, they do critical software for different companies, and they do accept a lot of, um, of people that have no background on informatics, for example, because they want their brains. That's the more important thing um, that we have. And then if people are, even people that can be in, in, in research, they can be a, a bad researcher. They cannot, and they're not publishing good papers. They're not, they don't have good ideas, but maybe their brain is good for making, heading a science outreach office, for heading a project management office, for running a company of some sort. So we have to, we have to, to look inside and see what really makes us good. Where, where is our expertise lying? It doesn't matter if we are top experts on the protein X that does whatever. Mm -hmm. Like my latest guest, PhD in neuroscience, and she's now heading this skills development department at the university where she did her exactly. PhD, where she's helping the students at the the, the program now uh, develop their uh, you know professional skills and and different things that will help them later on. It's a brain. It's a brain that 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 you have that will make you succeed. And if you're competitive, if you're competitive, you'll be competitive in many in many things. And you can return if you want to return. I, I think it's. I'm super happy to hear you say that. I hope what you're sharing is enough for people out there to get that confidence. And if they're thinking uh, in these terms, to get their confidence and and try something new, uh, because it's really important. And I I don't think people who worked so hard as to finish a PhD should be in a place of anxiety, of suffering and of doubting. You've accomplished a lot. Yes. And above all, there's something, there's something that should be, uh, I think, implemented in many institutions. It's this, uh, this notion of career development plans. And I know that some PIs think that's a waste of time. That takes a lot of time to look at paperwork and blah, blah. But PIs once were PhD students. Once they were postdocs. And probably were also helped to reach their levels. I was, I was helped, I can say, I, I really, I have a fantastic uh, relationship with my former uh, mentors. I collaborate, I scientifically collaborate with them right now. And I, each one of them gave great advice. Even now, there are people, uh, colleagues, uh, people in the, in the board of directors of the CNC, uh, friends that always give me good advice. And we have to, we have to hear uh, like I said, advice we have to give. Uh, we have to have. Uh, we not be should not be afraid of having mentorship from different people. And if you're a postdoc, uh, there are some courses. There are some things that you can follow. For example, I'll just give an example. We have something in Coimbra called uh, Instituto, the Instituto Pedro Nunes, which is one of the best uh, startup incubator in Europe. And most likely people don't don't know it, but it, they got several prizes. I'm not saying this because it looks fancy. They got several prizes. 
and they, they have different uh, initiatives when we, one day, two days, three weeks, just one day per one afternoon per, per day, where people can learn, for example, how to start a company, how to how to build innovation, how to communicate things. Those are the type of things that people should do, and people should not take uh, be a refugee of their own corner, of their own research, of the one they want protein X that activates whatever receptor and whatever does. Because that's, you are in, into a corner that if things change, you're dead. Yeah, if your type of grass dies, you're you're dead. Die, you die. <laughs> uh, so people, and sometimes I, I try hard to convince my own group to do that. And it's difficult because they are in there doing their work. They are under pressure to finish their thesis. To have indicators, and this is something that I think it's, it's actually kills creativity. Is our the, our deadlines, our the bureaucracies, our the indicators? So it's it's uh, we at the CNC we uh, try to get some mentorship into postdocs. I try to do that as well. I try to I like putting them in touch with people that can be can help them, and giving them some ideas for for careers. And if you are a PI, and this is for PIs, you should not be afraid of losing people. Uh, if they get a better job or if they get to go to a place where they prefer. I lost, during my life as a PI, I lost lots of people to other groups or to other jobs. People that were very valuable to my own research program. Yes, I, feel, I felt sad because of that, because I need those people. But I'm very happy that they're now succeeding in different, uh, in different places. And you have to help those people to evolve and to build their own careers. And you have to advise them. I, I, again, I'm super happy to hear that. And one day they will be on a podcast saying, well, I, I really appreciate uh, my mentor uh, <laughs> and the way he, they helped me uh, or, or they nurtured me in, in this way or that way, or they gave me space to do something or to explore something. Uh, it's super, super important. And uh, I'm super glad we t we touched upon this and and super happy to to hear what you have to say about it uh, because i to me it's very inspiring and again uh, i think i and i hope that the listeners out there uh, will will listen to this carefully and and take in some of this uh of this uh, wisdom because uh especially the, the fact the thing you were talking about about making a career plan it's it's very normal let's say in the industry business uh, side of things not so much on on the academic side but it should be more and more because uh, and and as as early as possible just to be intentional because i remember i got into in university it's it was the next thing i liked science i you know i my brain was wired like that and then well, my my path was was different but it's easy to just follow you know to to go through the moves without thinking too much but it's so much more helpful and you see that people out there who uh, have fulfilling uh, careers and and who you see out there they they have been very intentional in their choices early on and if you start planning from day one even if it's a little bit five minutes each week thinking projecting yourself into long-term future it will help you and it will there, there will be decisions that will be easier to take along the way because you kind of traced a, a vector that you're following and this, this also means that you can reorient you can reshape this plan throughout your your life yeah you can you can pivot your life and you have to have the thing people need to understand that you have to have choices you have to have possibilities of different choices you have to have skills to make choices and if you you get back into a corner 
with your own research, like I said, the protein X, that whatever, then you don't you, you don't have choices. That's the only thing you know how to do. Um, but if you have, if you simulate your brain uh, in many things, uh, it's much easier to go into different things. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to say because you're just hitting all the marks for me in terms of of what uh, of of the experience that you had, but also how you've digested it and and how you kind of see what what students and what researchers should be from now on in terms of, of looking at their career. Um, Paulo, I think we're running out of time. I would have wanted to talk about many things, about uh, how you were playing soccer in, uh, you know, across the ocean and, yeah. and how that was probably part of your uh, you know, wellness and, uh, and you know, clearing your mind uh, routine. But uh, I think we had so many other interesting things to talk about that, that that's going to stay for another conversation, I think. Let's not dilute all the, the, the pearls of wisdom that, that have been shared today. And uh, one thing I'd like to ask is if you have a, a, a Twitter handle that you'd like to share. Anyway, people who might be enticed to reaching out for you, how they can reach you? Yeah, well, um, I have to say, shame on me. <laughs> I'm not uh, very active on Twitter, so I don't have Twitter. I have a LinkedIn, which I rarely update, shame on me. We do have the, the group as a, as, a, as a Facebook page, so you have to look for uh, mitochondrial uh, toxicology and experimental uh, thera therapeutics. It's called MitoXT, that's the name of the group. So there's a, there's a on Facebook. Um, so that's where we put some of our new, our new publications, some of our new initiatives, some outreach um, stuff we do is actually placed there as well. Um, And uh, as far as I know, uh, Instagram, I don't have. <laughs> so I'm kind of, a, I'm, I'm not, and the, the only reason why I don't have those things is because of lack of time. As you can see from all my portfolio of activities, yeah. <laughs> um, especially having also two young daughters that I try to follow, they're all in their activities and gymnastics competitions and whatsoever. I don't have time to, to uh, update uh, or have Twitter and, and so on. But uh, I think people can follow or they can go also to Mitotag as, as also a Facebook page. As also, if you go to mitotag.eu, uh, that's our, our, our website. Uh, the CNC is also, if you go to CNC, uh, CNC, that's another thing, cnbc.pt, that's our webpage as well. So you can follow our, you can go to our, our, our group. But I think the, the, the Facebook page uh, or pages from, Mito, from Mitotag, From the CNC itself, uh, the, the CNC Center for Neuroscience and Biology is a very active, um, actually Twitter as well, uh, but I'm not sure exactly how I can reach it and people that know about this. But uh, the CNC is very active in terms of Twitter, in terms of Instagram, in terms of Facebook, and there's a ton of uh, outreach initiatives there. Like I said, from our own research group, we have Facebook. We have a Facebook, an active Facebook Excellent. page. Where put Excellent. I will find all of that and put it in the notes page of your episode. Paulo. Thanks immensely. Uh, my, we my touched pleasure. upon things that I that I didn't expect, and that were that I I really enjoyed listening to your view of things, and uh, and I'm quite inspired by how you're able to develop so many projects that I feel, that I feel I've, are very uh, important, and especially giving time to to outreach and and part of your brain bandwidth to that. Uh, it's it's uh, it's something that I think, like you were saying, scientists. It should be mandatory for scientists to to do it, and it'll bring positive things to them because 
it's kind of a way also to saying we're not just crazy people in uh, white lab coats. <laughs> exactly. That's the, no, no, that's, I think that's a critical thing. We're not just not crazy people with lots of hair, which in my case is not exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we have to, we have to, people have to see us as someone who's here to help them, uh, not in the near future, but maybe in 10 years or 15 years, at least in, in our research field, we may be uh, creating a, a drug of tomorrow or, uh, or, proving that a certain lifestyle is actually very good for people to get healthy. For example, playing football, except, except for your knees, uh, from my own experience. But um, it's, we are here to help the society. I think we should all of us be here to help each other. But that's... Paulo, those are wise words. Thank you so much. And uh, all the best to all, all of your projects. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.